Last week we studied verses 1 through 11 in the topic of suffering and comfort and God's grand purposes for these things. And today we're going to look at Paul's second major topic in this, ver- in this chapter. It's in verses 12 through 24 and even into chapter 2. And the title of our study, as you can see on the screen, is Complicated Christianity. We're only going to get through verse 12 this morning and our, because our goal is to get a deep grasp of this theme. And then next week, we're going to push all the way through the rest of the chapter and Lord willing into chapter two, where we'll see this demonstrated in Paul's life. I was hoping we'd get into some of that demonstration today, but verse 12 is going to give us plenty of content. So you can ignore the last two questions in your salt starter, in your bulletin. Those will apply next week. And while I'm thinking of a quick reminder again that we do have also on our community site two excellent videos about the ancient city of Corinth. I encourage you to check those out. Log into the community so you can get access to those. Check those out if you haven't already. They will really help you to connect with the life and the culture and the challenges that faced the Corinthian believers and help you understand why Paul wrote to them the way he did. Okay, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. We see that the Apostle Paul says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. You can see why I have had my eye on this verse in particular for months now. There are several significant implications here for how a Christian should live. By way of introduction, let me me ask this question. If I asked you to describe the way you live in one sentence, how would you describe it? Ponder that for a moment. In one sentence, how do you live your life? Here's the short version of Paul's short answer that we just read. He said, I lived, in honest, I lived in holiness and godly sincerity by the grace of God. The King James and the ESV translate one of those words this way. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. We see the word simplicity in the place of holiness here. They both accurately define what Paul was communicating. We'll look at this more deeply in a minute, but but for now, Paul says, my Christian life was simple. My behavior was not complicated or hard to figure out. There was an open uprightness, as the ESV Study Bible explains. There was no confusing mix of godliness and a little bit of worldliness. No pure motives and selfish motives. There was was not one way of living in the church and another outside the church. There wasn't a, a one way of living in public and another in private. Paul says, I didn't have one way of living in the world and one way of living before you in the church. He says, no, it was godly and sincere. It was holy. It was simple. Thus, we have the title of our study, Complicated Christianity. 
Sometimes, when it comes to sermon titles, I wrestle with whether to use the positive or the negative tense. I could have called this simple Christianity or holy Christianity, and I usually go with the positive because I prefer a positive and encouraging vision over the negative. But sometimes, the negative catches our attention a lot faster, and it gets the point across a lot clearer. My guess is that when I mention complicated Christianity, most everyone here knows what we're talking about. That wave of emotional exhaustion hits us right away just hearing those words. We all think, yes, Lord, help, help us not to go there. Would you agree that it's easy to overcomplicate Christianity, both in doctrine and in practice? Complicated Christianity exhausts and frustrates all of us to one degree or another. Many have been overwhelmed and even offended and genuinely hurt by the ignorant and sometimes self-righteous, self-imposed mandates of complicated Christianity. The Pharisees were masters of complicated religion. If you've done even basic study of Jewish law during Bible times, then you know that they added so much to the Mosaic law that people couldn't keep track. It's much like today's IRS, right? In some county building departments. Nearly impossible to keep track, let alone keep up. For example, God in the Ten Commandments gave a command regarding the Sabbath. It was very simple. He said, keep it holy and rest. The religious elite came along and clarified this command with countless man-made rules. How many steps you could walk on the Sabbath? How much you could wait you could carry at a time? How many letters you could write on the page before you were working on the Sabbath? And there is no end to that list. It's exhausting to think about. It's discouraging. And today, this kind of complexity strangles Christian passion and the beauty of godly simplicity. When I read the whole of Scripture, I conclude more and more that Christianity is not as complicated as we make it. My prayer is that we will all walk out of here today with a clarified bullseye of what it means to be a Christian and live like one. A clarified and simplified vision of how we should conduct ourselves in the world and especially in the church. We're going to look at seven signs I'm overcomplicating my Christianity. Again, forgive me for the negative tense, but it gets the point across. Seven signs I'm overcomplicating my Christianity. We will find all of these points, and you may even find more, right here in verse 12. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for the simplicity of godliness. You have contained all the truth we need for living and for the hope of eternal life and salvation and all these things within this single book that we call the Bible. Lord, help us to appreciate the clarity and the holiness and the perfection and the simplicity with which you speak. 
your word doesn't change from day to day. The meaning of it does not change from day to day because you do not change. We worship you as being the only un, uh, unchanging God. The only one and true and living God. That's why we open this word today. So we ask that your spirit would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Open our eyes to divine truth so that we might know how to live godly in an ungodly world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's jump right in. Here's sign number one that we are overcomplicating our Christianity. Number one, my faith is too focused on how others should live. I'm warning you, this study is going to burn just a little bit. I've been sitting in the frying pan for weeks in this text. But it's a good pain. It's a healthy pain. It's a freeing pain. The pain of obedience to the Word soon turns to be true joy and healing and freedom and peace and so much more. You understand this. You understand this. So look at this first phrase in verse 12 with me. Paul says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. Notice the word our used twice here already. Paul was speaking on behalf of himself and his one or two associates who were, who were doing mission work with him at the time. But personally, he is inferring the word my in this phrase. My proud confidence is this, the testimony of my conscience. Simple Christianity begins with a good look at my faith, my walk with God, the need for my repentance and growth, my spiritual health. And over the course of time and maturity, it pretty much just stays focused there. And in this magnificent pillar of truth statement, this test of Paul's integrity and innocence, he recognizes that this is personal. It is about his behavior and his faith, his motives, his conscience, not others. This first phrase also gives a sign number two that we're overcomplicating our Christianity. Number two, I rarely boast in a God-glorifying way about what God is doing in my life. This point starts here in this phrase, but it is amplified all throughout the rest of this verse, as you'll see. Paul uses the words proud confidence. Some of your Bibles use the word boast. Our boast is this. When we boast of something, you know what that means. We're fast to speak about it. We want others to notice. We shout it from the rooftop if we're given the chance. It's what we're proud of. It's what we put up front and center in our social media and in our conversation, etc. And Paul says, here's what we boast in. Here is what our proud confidence is in. And before we go to the next phrase, we notice that it's not wrong to be proud and to boast. It's not wrong to celebrate. As we'll see in a minute, Paul intentionally points out that it is the grace of God that accomplishes what he's proud of. He's not proud in the self-exalting way. He is mighty proud in the God-exalting way. Just like a child is proud of their father when he protects them and when he accomplishes great things 
And when he lavishes his love upon them, so Paul is proud of his God. Some of your Bibles use the word rejoice. Same meaning. This is what Paul cheers and shouts about. This is the banner that he smiles upon and holds so high. This is what brings him joy so great that others hear him cheering about it. All of this begs the personal application question, how proud are we of God and what He is doing in our life right now? If our thought is, there's just not much to be proud of here, then we should seriously ponder why. If the Spirit of God through the Word of God is not transforming us, sanctifying us, comforting us, strengthening us, producing the fruit of the Spirit in us, and accomplishing all of the good promises that we see woven all throughout Scripture, then why not? Because that's the way it's supposed to work. Oh, that we would have reason to be proud of our God and what He is doing in our lives. Not just what he was doing five or ten or thirty years ago, but what he's also doing right now. Paul said, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. Again, pause there. Paul hasn't told us yet what the testimony of his conscience is. He's going to. But we already spot sign number three that we're complicating our faith. Number three, I tend to ignore my God-given conscience. Adherence to and respect for his God-given, God-guided conscience is the first point noted in Paul's proud confidence, the testimony of my conscience. Consider the word testimony. This comes from the word testify. Right away, it gives us this, the picture of a court of law and someone being called up to testify, to tell only what they saw and heard and know to be true. And the word that they give is their testimony. Paul says, what I'm about to tell you is the testimony. The testimony, the legal word of my own conscience. The word by which I am bound to speak honestly. And the conscience being the most inner and most honest part of our personal being. Wearsby's commentary points out that this word comes from two Latin words, con, or com, meaning with, and seer, meaning to know. It's with knowledge. It's the voice of reason in us that has the most intimate knowledge of and most sincerely testifies of our actions and our motives. It speaks honestly of what it understands to be right and wrong. It's not perfect. It's not the Holy Spirit. But it is the most sincere and truthful part of our being that God has sovereignly placed within us, both within believers and unbelievers. It's the voice that we can never fully hide from. And Paul says, here is the testimony of my conscience I am speaking as honestly and thoroughly as I can. Now, even in light of the importance of the conscience, though, we learn from the rest of this verse that what we honestly think of ourselves, our conscience, is not enough. Again, because our conscience is not perfect. We are fallen, sinful, limited human beings. 
But the verse continues. Here's where Paul lays out the actual testimony of his conscience and the basis of his proud confidence. He says that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. If you are looking for a crystal clear, basic bullet point list of how to live the Christian life, you just saw it. Remember, in a sense, Paul is standing before a court of law, in a sense. He has been charged by false super apostles, as he, as he mockingly calls them. People in the church, leadership in the church of Corinth, that has falsely charged him with being deceitful, incapable of preaching and teaching, untrustworthy, greedy, etc., especially in regards to this collection that he was gathering for the Jews, the church in Jerusalem. He had been attacked on all possible fronts. Guzik notes in his commentary, the Corinthian Christians were so used to dealing with ministers who were calculating and manipulative, they figured Paul must be the same way. Part of this suspect view of him was the fact that he said he was going to come back to them. He was going to visit. He was going to check on them. He was going to continue ministering to them. And he didn't come back. Not when he said he would. And so all this question comes up. All this doubt. And so here in this chapter and throughout this book, Paul is addressing these charges. And in a sense, the church of Corinth is the judge. So it is with great care that Paul is stating his case and, and offering his supporting points. And in doing so, the Holy Spirit is teaching us how to live the Christian life. So let's break down this behemoth of a statement, phrase by phrase. Paul starts out by saying that in holiness and godly sincerity. What's another sign we should watch for that indicates we're complicating our faith Number four, this is one that, that perhaps hits hardest for me. Number four, my Christianity is not quite biblical at times. Anyone here ever added a little extra to what the Bible said about how you're supposed to live? Or how others are supposed to live? Ever modified this rule book just a touch to fit our conscience? Paul's about to tell us what he did and why he's so proud and confident, but he is prefacing his behavior with these two specific moral qualities, holiness and godly sincerity. First, we have holiness. Again, this is the same Greek word used for simplicity. It's important to note that this use of the word holy is different from the more common use of the word that we would see in texts like 1 Peter 1.16, be ye holy, for I am holy. That refers to being sacred and consecrated, fully devoted to God. Thayer's Bible Dictionary defines this word usage of holy in our text today this way. Singleness, mental honesty, free from pretense and hypocrisy. The words are similar, but it does have its own distinction there, as you can see. This use of the word holy in 1 Corinthians is likely better understood with the translation simple or single. Only one meaning, one purpose. No faking it, no dual intention, no changing. 
Paul states that his actions were not entangled with sin. They weren't intertwined with both good and guile. Instead, they were free of wrong motive and attitude. They were pure. They were morally simple. Only one intention. They were holy. Paul says we kept our behavior simple. But not just for the sake of simplicity. It was simple, how did he say? In a godly and sincere way. This leads us to the second way Paul described his behavior. In godly sincerity. We learn from these very carefully chosen and divinely inspired words that it is not enough to be sincere. Atheists are sincere and really mean what they say. Buddhists are sincere. Mormons are sincere. We all know people, and even ourselves, who at one point or another were sincerely wrong about something. Paul, in one word, teaches us by example, that the believer's sincerity must be godly. In the simplest of terms, it must be godlike, meaning it aligns with God's values, His commands, His purposes, His teachings, His truth. And we know that there is only one way to know if our sincerity is singularly godlike. And that is by the standard of Scripture and the Holy Spirit's opening of our spiritual eyes to the pure meaning of Scripture. There are a lot of people who read the Bible and unknowingly read it wrong, sincerely. At that moment, their understanding, their belief, their teaching, their behavior according to it ceases to be godly. Because while their intentions may have been right, their conclusions, their teachings, their behaviors now violate other parts of Scripture. That's why we must all be students of the Word. This isn't the first time you've heard this exhortation today, praise God. We must be students of the whole Word learners of the Scripture, disciples of the Scripture. I was shocked when two young men came to my door this week, this week, claiming to be of a certain religion. I won't name that because that's not the point. But in the course of our conversation, I asked them, you've read the New Testament, haven't you? Have you read the book of Romans? And both of them admitted they had never read it. They read parts of it. They had never read it all the way through. And they clearly hadn't studied it. Friends, that is a sure way to be sincerely misguided. We must read and study the whole of Scripture. It's why we teach and preach the Old Testament as well as the New. God does not change. He will not contradict Himself. And we need to know all about God that we possibly can. We read and study the whole of Scripture so that the sincerity of our belief and behavior can be godly. It's a very deep and profound question that guides all Christian thought and behavior, and it goes like this. Does the Bible really say that? 
I'm not going to dive into the specific areas of Christian behavior and lifestyle, such as entertainment and modesty and money and whether or not you can drink wine, etc., that Christians so freely and sincerely throw rules at. We're not going to go there right now. I just want to humbly remind us to ask the question, does the Bible really say that? Are we sure that's the undeniable application that Scripture is implying for all believers? Are we making up some of the rules here, especially for other people? Paul hit the nail on the head when he essentially said, I sincerely behaved according to Scripture and the standards of holiness that my conscience believes God demands. Friends, this often comes as a shock to us. But God will raise the standard of holiness far higher than you and I can raise it for someone else or even for ourselves. I have to think that if we all aligned our moral compass with these truths that we are finding in verse 12 alone, a lot of confusion and frustration and complexity would go away on its own in the church. Is our sincerity biblical? For some of us, that will raise the standard of holiness in particular areas. For others, my goodness, it might even lower the standard at times. Or a better way of saying of that would be, it will improve the standard. Holiness never goes lower. Don't forget that. Whatever the case, the simple goal and standard for Christian behavior is to act in holiness and godly sincerity. That's why Paul pointed those two things out. He said, here you go. Here's my life. By the grace of God. Let us stamp those words on our minds. Holiness and godly sincerity. It's not what you think. It's not what I think. It's what God says. Show me a Christian who passionately wants to know and align their heart and behavior with what God says in Scripture so I can ask that person to teach a Sunday school class as soon as possible. We need that kind of example and teaching. I'll be the first to admit that sometimes my Christianity isn't quite biblical. It's why we have to keep going back to the Word through the Spirit for course correction. The verse goes on to say, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. The fact of this matter is very clear. Paul did not rely on his own wisdom, his own strength, his own wit, his own understanding, his own sense of morality, but rather on the grace of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the strength of the Holy Spirit. All of these things that come from God. Point number five, a sure sign of overcomplicating our faith is, I'm trying too hard. The wording of the text here gives us a hidden caution. Write this one down. It's possible to pursue godly sincerity with fleshly wisdom. It's possible 
to pursue godly wisdom, excuse me, godly sincerity with fleshly wisdom. That kind of mistake may be ignorant, but it's still a mistake, right? Even in the pursuit of holy conduct, we must beware humanistic reasoning and effort. So many people seek God on their own understanding on in, and, and on their own terms and end up finding no God and no power at all. It's not God's fault. So how do we live for God by His grace, by His divine strength and wisdom? It, it's not complicated. We go to the Word and the Spirit. By the grace of God, that will always be the answer you hear from this pulpit and from the teachers in these classrooms and the leaders of these Bible studies. And when you open your Word for yourself and I open the Word for myself, myself may that be the source that we find grace in. The Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God in us. But do you know how many Christians don't read their Bible every day? Or meditate and study deeply even one time a week in their quiet time with God? Christian friend, remember that godly sanctification will never be accomplished apart from God. I know that sounds kind of obvious, but again, the obvious isn't always so obvious, is it? Godly sanctification will never be accomplished apart from God. We tend to complicate Christianity and then wonder why it doesn't work. If you're taking notes, you might drop this one down. The absence of personal Bible study and prayer is fleshly wisdom. Underline the is. The absence of personal Bible study and prayer is fleshly wisdom. There is no way around that truth. We not only need the Word and the Spirit and these times of prayer and Bible devotion and submission and obedience and all these proper responses that we find throughout Scripture, we not only need them, we can't survive and thrive without them. Friend, are you trying too hard? without God. If our one-on-one on, one on one time with the Lord needs some major remodeling, then this is the week to do that job. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. You know these verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Acknowledge Him Every disciple of Christ should know full well what that means and looks like. Acknowledge Him. It doesn't mean a quick, shallow prayer when we're in a pinch. Lord, help me know what to do here. Lord, please help take care of this problem. No, actually, this biblical acknowledgement is a full turning toward the Word and the Spirit of God and a full abandonment of self-reliance. That's what it means to acknowledge God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 
Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, says the Lord. Sometimes I sit before the Word of God speechless at the wisdom of what He speaks to us. Aren't you grateful for the Word of God? That He didn't just save us and send us on our way. He saved us and equipped us for every day every trial, every blessing we receive. May our daily acknowledgement prove our gratitude. Paul goes on to say, it's in these ways that we have conducted ourselves in the world. In the world. That's a big place. There are no compartments here. This is how we lived everywhere before all men in all places, Paul is saying. At home, at school, in public and private, in the church and in the fishing boat, on vacation, you name it. Before Jews and Gentiles, before Christians and non-Christians, everywhere in the world, Paul says, this is how we conducted ourselves. In holiness and godly sincerity by the grace of God. In 21st century terms, Paul is saying, what you see at church is how I lived at home. How I live at work is how I live in the church. When I go on vacation, my faith and holiness don't take a break. I only know one life. What a testimony of the conscience. Can our conscience echo such words? Is the desire of our conscience to echo such words? Is at least the direction of our conscience to echo these words? Another sure sign I'm overcomplicating my faith is number six. My Christianity changes based on who I'm with. If you or I think it's hard living the Christian life, try living two lives, right? Try wearing two masks. Try keeping track of the web of lies and pretenses it takes to pretend you're holy when you're not. That is complicated Christianity. Paul says very intentionally, we lived in simplicity, in holiness, and in godly sincerity everywhere. And he adds to it, and especially towards you, At first glance, we might interpret this to mean that Paul acted more spiritual when he was around believers. But that doesn't sound right, does it? I mean, that's what we we all tend to abhor when we see. That's what we call hypocrisy in the church. That's not singleness of mind and heart. That is not holiness everywhere. Paul isn't saying he acted especially spiritual when he was around church people. That would contradict everything he said prior. 
You can't be holy and godly and sincere in one place, but then turn around and be more holy and godly and sincere in another. We are who we are. Paul's whole point in this verse is the consistency of his godly behavior. The word especially here refers not to quantity or to quality, but to importance. His consistent holy conduct was particularly special and important and impactful toward the Corinthian believers. Think about this. This is a huge Christian living principle. One of the sure signs I'm overcomplicating my Christianity is that number seven, I don't realize what a difference my testimony makes in my own church family. Why would our simplicity and godly sincerity be of first importance and first impact in the church more so than out in the world? Well, we know this to be true from Scripture. Whatever is in the heart is what comes out. From the heart overflow the issues of life. Show me a church that is full of hypocrisy and is quietly hated from within by its own people. And I'll show you a church that has virtually no witness and no credibility out there. On the other hand, <clears throat> show me a church that is hated by the world and you may very well, well still have a church that is holy and sincere in their godliness. The latter is at least possible, but not the prior. Paul says, my holiness counted even more when I was with you. Why is that so true? Here are several practical reasons we find to be true. You can probably add some to this list. Believers expect it. Believers are looking for it. Believers are learning from it. It affects their faith. It affects the unity of the body of Christ. It affects their strength and comfort and encouragement. It affects their view of God when they are looking for Him. The list goes on and on. On the contrary, what does the world expect? They expect us to swear a little. They expect us to cheat when we think we can get away with it. They expect us to lie when we probably won't get caught. They expect us to get revenge. They expect selfishness out of us. They expect immorality. Paul says, but we know better. And if I can't represent Christ well to you, how can I represent him to the lost? Brothers and sisters in Christ, our humble, sincere, simple, godly behavior is especially important in the church. Every person here makes a difference. Every person counts. Look ahead to chapter 2, which we'll study next week, where Paul says in verse 2, If I cause you sorrow... Who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? Paul understood, I need you and you need me. 
we are in this together. We cannot accomplish the work of the ministry and the process of spiritual growth apart from the body of Christ. God designed us to only function well when we are together. That's why we weep together and rejoice together. How are we ever going to win if we tear down our own teammates, Paul is asking in chapter 2. We are irreversibly together in this journey of faith because God knows best and God designed it that way. We'll look at that relationship and that building each other up next week. But here, though, we see that Paul passionately desired to be an excellent testimony and to have an excellent impact, especially in the church. Friend, you and I recognize what a difference our life and our testimony makes in our own church family. Praise God for and take time to appreciate every person here who is faithfully striving by grace to live the simple, holy Christian life before one another. None of us are perfect, but many of us are striving for simplicity and holiness and a godly sincerity as we take this journey together. And that is a beautiful thing. When you spot it in the church, when you see it in another believer, boast in what God is doing. Encourage their heart. Motivate them on with good words. Give God praise. In a day and age when programs and methods and logic and image seem to be getting more and more complicated, there is something that is stunningly beautiful and highly attractive in holiness. Simple holiness. Biblical holiness. Nothing more, nothing less. Friends, let us not complicate Christianity. Heavenly Father, As awesome and sovereign as you are, we thank you that you are simple, pure, holy, and unchanging. Lord, help us to be so desirous of understanding and knowing you the heart of God, the mind of God, the ways of God, the will of God, that the Holy Spirit is then able to come in and change us. Lord, we, want, we don't want to live this life according to our own understanding. We've tried that. We don't want to live it in our own strength. We have tried that. And we all know that sooner or later, circumstance proves that we have no power at all anyway. None of us controls our future. 
but you know it all. And that's why we worship you. Who else do we have to go to? Who can claim to be the God of all comfort, the Father of mercy, not to mention the King of kings and the Lord of lords? God, you have been so faithful to us. This day I pray that you would bolster our trust in your faithfulness. Give us, Lord, a proud confidence and a testimony of conscience that sings of your grace, that cheers of your loving kindness, your justice, and your righteousness. You are worthy of our praise. Thank you for being our God, our Savior, our King, and our friend, our comforter. Lord God, if there is a person here who does not know you as their Savior, if they are still holding on to the guilt of sin and searching for the hope of eternal life, I pray that they would open your word and find you. You are there to be found. You remind us that today is the day of salvation. Lord, give any unsaved soul here the courage by grace to ask for truth, to speak with me or another one here, to open your word and seek the truth knowing they will find it and the truth will set them free. God, help us not to complicate Christianity, but to bask in the simplicity of holiness. We pray this for your glory and for our good testimony that will happen only by your grace. And in Jesus' name, amen.